All right, if you would be seated, and I'm going to read our Old Testament selection, which is Psalm 118. Some think this uh, may have been written, well, I guess in David's time. Others think it may have been written at the time of the when Nehemiah was doing the uh, wall and they were building the temple and during that period when he talks about the stone which the builders rejected some people take that actually literally and think that when they were doing all that building there was one stone they couldn't figure out where it it would go give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting oh let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress I called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I shall not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do sin, prosperity. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Amen. Now we're going to turn over to 1 Corinthians. And at the end of Corinthians, at the end of this letter, we have Paul closing out this letter. And we're going to read the first 14 verses. 
Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I know to, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me. For I expect him I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray now that you would open up your word to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text for this morning is verses 8 and 9. In the first four verses, I'll just mention this by way of introduction. In the first four verses, we have some here relating to the giving of the church. They were to take an offering at Corinth. And uh, the rule there in verse 2 you save as you may prosper. That's one of the main uh, one of the main principles in tithing in our giving, that God prospers us. If you're a farmer and you have uh, ten uh, bushels of wheat and you plant those ten bushels and you, it yields you a hundred bushels, and I don't want to hear anybody correcting me about farming. This is an illustration. Uh, just keep it to yourself. Anyway, so you had ten and you made a hundred, then your increase would be 90. And so 90 is what you would uh, pay your tithe on after you'd subtracted other expenses, maybe for your implements or whatever else you had to use. But that's a basic principle in Scripture as uh, you subtract what it took you to make that money. Uh, Anyway, that's a whole different subject. But you see how... Paul wanted the people to give how they would give. They 
God was the one who was prospering them. And then he didn't want any there to be any misunderstanding or any reason for anyone to be suspicious about him in the deliverance of this gift and of this offering uh, so that there would be people who would be uh, taking it and, and there would be witnesses about it and he might travel with them, but he wanted to avoid any uh, sense of impropriety that uh, some people might have. There are other passages in the book of Corinthians that talk to us about, uh, about giving. But the thing that I want us to consider is the church at Ephesus and what was going on there with the Apostle Paul and what he says about that. And I want us to think about it in terms of us here as a church plant because Ephesus was a church plant. There are many church plants really in the scripture. And so we can make a very valuable uh, application. Um, I hesitate to mention this because it sounds like I'm bragging and all that, but I'm not bragging. I'm just blessed of the Lord. But there was a time when Brenda and I were actually able to visit the city of Ephesus or visit what was what's left of it. And... Um, the, we were on a cruise, and the cruise couldn't stop there. You could have ships that would used to go to Ephesus, but this, but we had to get off the ship somewhere else because there was no port at Ephesus today. It's all swamp and it's all silt that's been uh, pulled in there. So you really have to, if you go to a port, you have to go somewhere else, and then you have to get transportation to get to the town. But it was very um, interesting when we were on this trip. It wasn't any kind of Holy Land tour or anything like that. We were just on a cruise and we went to a lot of places that are covered in the Bible and we would be trying to read the scriptures as we went along and then we could uh, even discuss that at times with people on the ship and one thing or another. But um, when we came to Ephesus, uh, not a whole lot of Ephesus has been uh, has been uh, unearthed. It's still a great deal that uh, hasn't been uh, revealed. But it had the main thoroughfare that Paul would have walked down when he entered the city. And there was a hillside where a lot of people had lived that had been unearthed. And you can go by, probably online and see pictures of this. And the uh, intricate uh, tile work on their floors and walls and all this stuff and that's where all the rich people live and as I was there I would think okay did some of the were some of these people rich people who lived here were they believers did they have servants who were believers and we traveled down the city street the main thoroughfare on both sides of the street there would be uh, temples to different pagan gods and you wouldn't have to walk too far until you came to another one. And there would be uh, houses of prostitution that just were there advertising their wares to anybody who passed by. And then as we came down to the end of the street or went after it cut a corner, we were there where the different um, tradesmen made these intricate uh idols of Diana and where they sold their wares and that's where the the 
Christians preached the gospel and they had a riot to develop and then they drug uh, the disciples back up on the hill into the amphitheater behind this marketplace and uh, it just all this all this stuff trying to imagine what it was like that day listening to everybody shouting and wanting to kill these Christians and everything else it was um, and to seeing the predominance of uh, the idolatry, the predominance of superstition. A lot of times when we read our Bibles, we fail to realize how superstitious that generation was. But uh, remember when uh, Herod heard about Jesus, he was afraid that he'd come, John the Baptist had come back from the dead. It, there was just a lot of superstition that attended uh, the people. Well, Paul's second missionary journey in Acts 18, he visited Ephesus for a short time. He spoke and he reasoned there in the synagogue with the Jews. He was asked to stay on that occasion, but he declined and said he would return if God willed him to return. On his third missionary journey, which is covered in the next chapter of Acts, he taught in that synagogue in Ephesus for three months. Opposition developed and he withdrew and went to the school of Tyrannus. And he stays there at Ephesus for two years, teaching and ministering. And this is when he wrote this book, 1 Corinthians. When he resumes his missionary trips, he doesn't stop at Ephesus. You may remember this in Acts chapter 20 where he talks about the church and the elders Instead of stopping at Ephesus, he stopped at Miletus, which was down the road from Ephesus, and he told he sent word to have the elders to come down there and meet him then. Later on, when he was a prisoner, he wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus called Ephesians, and later he wrote two letters to the fellow who was the pastor in the church at Ephesus, and that's how we have First and Second Timothy. And then later on, Ephesus is mentioned in the writings of the Apostle John because it was one of the seven churches in Asia that Christ sent, had a special message for. And all this stuff we will put together. In other words, as we look at this church and what's going on here and, and the, their future and all that, we're going to be able to put together some of the things that were said to Timothy, what was said to John later, what was said in Revelation commending them. We're going to have some of these things said to us, some of the same things that could be said about us that were said of them. Well, the first thing I want to cover is the idea of opportunity. Paul says we got a great opportunity here. And he says that in the first part of verse 9. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me. I think some translations you might have says for effective work. It's the same thing. Has opened to me. So basically what he's saying is I've got an audience here. I've got some people listening. I've got opportunity. I've got some great opportunity here to present the gospel and to um, preach the gospel. Now, 
in our Bibles, a lot of times it's funny how they think they, that um, that there's an opportunity and yet they don't take it. So uh, when Paul's first opportunity came at Ephesus, when he, for his first trip there, he had opportunity, but for some reason he didn't take it because they were begging him to stay. I mean, you got a willing audience, but he didn't think it was God's will. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says in Troas that he was given an open door, but he didn't stay long. So one of the things I, I want to warn you about, and I, we have to remember in our thinking about God's will at times, what we should do and not do and things like that, a lot of Christians are susceptible to saying, well, God has closed the door. Well, maybe he has, or maybe they're lazy, or maybe they're frustrated, or maybe he wants to see if they'll persevere, or maybe he wants to see if they'll push through. If every missionary went to the mission field and weren't and were not immediately was not immediately accepted, then they would just simply say, I, "God's closed the door. Let's pack it up and go back home." So when you hear people talking about closing doors and opening doors, don't ever. The best advice is don't ever use that as a standard by which you should w understand what God's will is. Use other things about the situation. So he says that God had given an opportunity, and he calls this an opportunity. In the New American Standard, he calls this a wide door. In other words, there seem to be numerous opportunities for effective service. In other words, it seemed like that he, it was really proven that some good things were going to happen. Here is how his time that Luke... The, the writer Luke who wrote Gospel of Luke also wrote Acts. And here is how he described what was going on at that time. He says, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. In other words, they were experiencing revival. God was converting people. People were growing in the faith. People were anxious to worship. They were uh, in the word, in prayer, in fellowship. A lot of good things were uh, going on. Now, what can we say about that as far as where we are right now? Where are we right now? Do we have a door of opportunity for us as a local church? The answer is yes. We may not be seeing crowds coming to us, but we live in a time where we have a freedom to practice the faith. We have a freedom to bring our friends and relatives to church. We have a freedom to proclaim the gospel. We have a freedom at present to be those who make a public witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We presently enjoy this. And even though we may not see revival going on, we have much for which we can give thanks. Now what is the what are the characteristics of the Apostle Paul's wide door for effective service. And how could we apply this to ourselves? The first, uh, the first one is he had an opportunity for ministry without prejudice. Without prejudice. Many churches make a distinction. They want people in their church just like them. Uh, James writes about the rich not uh, 
being prejudiced toward the poor. There were certain Jews that were prejudiced toward the Gentiles. You remember Peter himself had to deal with some of this, as did others. There are usual distinctions between people as race and nationality. And today we have that distinction based on politics. But here's what uh, is said about that time from Acts. And this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of God, both Jews and Greeks. So what's the application for us? The application is that there is to be an openness and a an acceptance of everyone, a welcoming of everyone with no prejudice. And I don't know of any prejudice. We have an opportunity to minister to everyone, regardless of race, political persuasion, wealth or poverty, education level, those that have come from a sinfully uh, uh, open and visible lifestyle, and those who... Uh, even others who are self-righteous and and whatever. But we can minister without prejudice. The second point is that they had an opportunity to experience the power of God in and around them. And we have the same opportunity. In the church at Ephesus, again, Luke tells us what happened. That besides the word of God prevailing, Besides it going out to both Jews and Gentiles, there were all these miraculous things happening. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the disease left them, and the evil spirits went out. Now, I don't know of anyone who has been healed in our... um, assembly through a handkerchief. I have a handkerchief, but I don't think God is still doing these kinds of miracles. Nevertheless, that is not to say that God does not still answer prayer. We have seen great answers to prayer in our fellowship. We've seen a prayer answered in regard to family members and uh, healing for sickness, material needs met, grace to minister to others and uh, people working through and dealing with difficult situations. We should not take this lightly, and we should not disparage the power of prayer and the power of our God to hear our prayers when we call upon Him. James warns us that sometimes when we do pray, we don't receive what we ask for because we have wrong motives. So as we pray, we should have right motives. Not that it would uh, glorify us, but that it would glorify God. Jesus in Matthew 7 tells us to persevere in asking, that we are to persevere. He tells us to seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be open to you. Everyone who seeks receives. Ask receives and he who seeks finds. And to him that knocks, it shall be opened. Or what man among you, when his son asks him for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? This is what we are to believe. We have our prayer calendar. We have our reminders daily of what 
We can pray for, for one another. We have the word of God. We are to believe what Christ said, that God is our Heavenly Father who loves us, who hears our prayers. It is not a routine. It is not an exercise in nonsense. We are communing with the true and the living God. And then Jesus, we read a while ago, says that if we abide in Him and His words abide in us, in other words, He's going to be telling us by His word to pray according to His will, we can ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us. History records times in the life of the church when believers may have not have had the apostolic miraculous powers, but believers still had they saw the presence of God among them. We've been studying about the Reformation, the Puritans, and all these things. These were times when God acted, and there's nothing to limit Him to act in our time as well. The third thing about opportunity here is an opportunity for living holy lives, Christ-likeness. People became Christians. What happened at that time? What happened in Ephesus? The magicians were converted. They burned their books. The people served with humility. They shed tears on behalf of others among them. Later, uh, Paul writes to Timothy to pursue righteousness and godliness and all these things. And this is what the lives of the people at Ephesus were showing. Those who were masters, those who were servants, those who were uh, whatever walk of life they were in. And here's the same opportunity that you and I have today. Before our neighbors and our relatives, before those at school and at work, before those who know us, our relatives and our friends, everyone, we are called to live holy and godly lives just as these believers were. That God would use it for His glory and that God would use it in the lives of others. Later, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He writes to this church from prison and probably wrote to them what he had preached to them previously. And he says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. He's emphasizing how we are to behave ourselves to one another in the body of Christ. Listen to this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. In other words, we as Christians, just because we profess Christ, doesn't mean that we're home free and that we don't don't have stuff to clean up in our lives, in our thinking, in our speech, in our actions, in our showing love to one another, in our being happy for another person's success in our being concerned for one another in sin and not looking down upon them or depreciating them in some way. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This is how we're to live with one another. Fourthly, opportunity for aggressive proclamation of the whole counsel of God without embarrassment. 
And that's what Paul did when he preached at Ephesus. He did not cut corners. He did not worry about what was in the news that was not acceptable if it conflicted with the Word of God. He did not hesitate to deal with doctrines that other people think are totally off, uh, off limits, like election or predestination or the sovereignty of God or the doctrine of hell or a, a, a definite uh, being like Satan. He didn't hesitate to deal with the whole counsel of God. Paul makes this testimony when, uh, when, he, when those elders, on, his, on that third missionary journey, when he says to the elders, y'all come on down to, uh, he always said y'all, he said y'all come on down to Miletus. And that's where he told them. He went back and uh, they were witnesses to his ministry. But he said, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then at the end of that he said, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And this is what he did. We read the book of Ephesians. We see him dealing, declaring the whole counsel of God. We see him writing to Timothy. And what does he tell Timothy? What does he tell Timothy? He tells Timothy to be in the Scriptures. He tells Timothy to use the Scripture. Because why? Because all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. He tells Timothy, your, your foundation is the scripture what's the application for you and me the application is that we are to declare the truth of god we're not to compromise we're not to be uh, playing god we're not to be acting like we're smarter than god that we should leave this out because it will be offensive we are to speak things in love we are to speak things in kindness we are to try to be understanding we are to be patient we are to be long-suffering All those things are what God is toward us. But we're still to declare the whole counsel of God. And the whole counsel of God is not going to be received a lot of times. There will be those who reject it. And they have to deal with their rejection of it, just like there were those, no doubt, who rejected it at Ephesus. But we want to, in love, declare the whole counsel of God ourselves. Now, What can we say of the opposition that came to Paul and the opposition that might come to us? In the last part of verse 9, he says, And there are many adversaries. So he had a good opportunity, but there there was still opposition. Let me tell you this, and... I can show you a lot of illustrations of this from Scripture. I can show you a lot of illustrations from this from the church. And I can show you just a lot of illustrations from this from life. And the fact is that any great thing or any good thing that is really worth doing or bringing about is going to face opposition, period. If you think 
that if God if God were to send revival and a, and bring reformation right now, don't think oh this would be so wonderful. It would be wonderful, but let me tell you, all hell is going to break loose against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It just will. Why? Because the Reformation means change. It means repentance in culture, repentance in churches. It means exalting Christ and not man. It means believing His truth instead of being subject to whatever science or psychology or whatever the political party that is dominating wants us to believe at that particular time. Where this opposition come from for Paul or comes from to us? Well, the first place, it comes from those who are wrong about religion. There were those who plotted against Paul, like the Jews. And so, as, uh, as they were against Paul, he had, to go, he had to find another place to go to, go to worship. So they were against Paul. Also in Ephesus, it came from idolatry. There was the goddess Diana. The statues of her had her arms extended welcomely. She had multiple breasts, signifying her noble blessing of reproduction powers for men and animals and all of life. And so she was to be worshipped. And when Paul came preaching, he came preaching to the Jews of salvation in Christ, who they had rejected, many had rejected. He came preaching that Diana was nothing, and all of this idolatry and magic and everything must be rejected. And additionally, Paul even faced opposition from within the church itself. And, And so what we're talking about is We're talking about religious people, some in idolatry, the Jewish faith, and then even in the church, there was going to be opposition against the Apostle Paul. Here's what, when those elders came down to Miletus, here's what Paul told the Ephesian Ephesian elders that came down there. He says, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, that doesn't just mean, in my way of thinking, that there would be people in the congregation who might oppose the truth, but there would be men elected to being elders who would be opposing the truth. And he lets them know that uh, this is going to happen. And you can read in Ephesians, or you can read in 2 Timothy, where he tells Timothy about all this happening in the last days as well. So how did the church at Corinth fare with this opposition? They did pretty good. Because in the letter, uh, when Christ spoke to the church at Ephesus in Revelation years later, uh, he commended the church for how they had been so doctrinally pure and how they had not put up with a lot of nonsense of false belief. This is what he said to the church at Ephesus. And this is a real commendation. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. 
they exercised church discipline. And it really pleased Jesus. And so what is, you know, what's the application here for us? The application for us is to be faithful to God's word in humility and love, but to be faithful. Where else did opposition come from? Well, it came from the world and Satan and his angels. Paul warned the Christians at Ephesus that they were to wear the Christian armor. You remember that in Exodus 10? I mean, in Exodus chapter 4 uh, or 5, I think, uh, maybe it's, no, it's 6. Ex, uh, Ephesians 6, I even got the book wrong. Ephesians 6, verse 10 and following, he talks to them about wearing Christian armor. You remember that? They were to wear the Christian armor. Why? Because Satan is real. Because we deal with powers that can't even be seen. Satan and his angels. In Ephesians, the people who became followers of Diana, they uh, that led to fewer idols being sold and it hurt their prophets. So what happened when Paul was preaching in Acts, a riot uh, develops. The whole system of life was real, built around Diana and it was it threatened uh, uh, it was being threatened by Christianity. And that's, that's what I'm saying. When God brings revival and when He brings reformation, it starts threatening the established culture. And that's what happened at Ephesus. So people were being converted. People became Christians. They were following Christ. They were giving up their idols. And so it hurt the business of the craftsmen who made these idols and sold them. At the temple was the city's art gallery. The business operated in making shrines was also had a central bank. In the temple, there was much land that was under ownership by the temple. And the fishing industry was actually managed from that temple. And now you find that temple is being questioned as to whether it should even exist. You could see why the authorities are so threatened. It threatened a great system that man had created and it called to re- people to repentance and allegiance to Jesus Christ. And this is why a lot of times Christianity is feared in our land. Because man likes to be God. Man likes to make his own decisions. He likes to determine his own values. And he likes to have his own way. And as long as Jesus doesn't get in his way, he's okay. But when Christ calls us to be uh, only faithful to Him, that's when the problems occur in culture. So where would the third form of opposition come from? I think that the emphasis when he said there are many adversaries, he's thinking primarily about the other religions and he's thinking about the world and Satan and his angels. But in other places, the Apostle Paul warns that the adversaries would be in the church itself. From within ourselves, our struggle with our own sinful nature. Paul's advice to the elders at Ephesus was not to watch out just for false teachers, but to watch out for themselves. Now, we now listen, y'all need to listen to this. I need to listen to this. I told you a while ago about Paul commending the church at Ephesus. But what does he say? He says something to the elders and he says something to the congregation as a whole. 
So the word of God came to the elders at Miletus, and the word of God comes to Pete Hurst and Nate and Lowell and Lacey and Steve because none of these men who are our commission are above sin. And the word of God comes to us as it came to those elders. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the word of God. I, got, I usually read scripture for our commission meeting and I think next Tuesday week I'm going to read that. I'm going to read Acts 20 and I'm going to say, men, this is written for all of us. Okay? None of the elders are above sin as a group or individually. But he also says the word not just to the elders but to the elders and the people. A while ago I read for you how Jesus commended the church at Ephesus later after Paul had been there. But he also had this word of warning. And it's very, it's very crucial and important for us to hear it as a local church. And this is what he said to that church. After commending them, he says, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. What's he saying? And where would we find these churches that would be so careful to be correct, but maybe lose their first love? Well, the first place we would look is at the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the church that prides itself in its history and its heritage and the legacy it hopes to leave and the doctrine it stands upon and all these things. Are these things bad? No, these things are good. These are all things by the grace of God. These are all things true, just like Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus. But these are all things that we can start taking confidence in and we can lose our first love for Jesus. Is Jesus precious to you? Do you enjoy fellowship with Jesus? Do you delight in Jesus Christ? Do you want to spend time with Christ? Do you have an intimate relationship with Christ and enjoy Christ? Do you have this fervency for Him? Are you confident in your doctrine and your theology and your works and all the good things you do? Or is your confidence in Christ and your love for Him? We can, become very, we can become very caught up in our routines, caught up in our church life, our church doing things, and we can forget Christ Himself. We must watch our own hearts. We must walk with Christ. Correct theology is not enough to please Jesus. And without a heart that loves the Lord, and desires to live and please Him, correct theology doesn't even count. Opportunity and opposition. That's what was given to Paul and the church at Ephesus. And that's where we are as well this morning. And the same Lord that blessed him for those couple of years and the future years of that church at Ephesus, even though they had their problems like we'll have ours, nevertheless, the Lord was with them. And so you and I can be encouraged. We have a good foundation. We have a Lord who is the king and sovereign ruler who provides for us, loves us, cares for us, 
who receives us, who forgives us of our sins when we get out of line, who corrects us. He is our Savior. And we love Jesus Christ as we confessed earlier. He is the King and the Head of the Church. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your salvation. Father, we come to you uh, and thank you for sending Christ to us. And we pray that you would cause our hearts to always be warmed toward him. We pray also for the work of your Holy Spirit to work in each of our lives individually and in the life of this church corporately. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning.